Well, good, good morning again, everyone. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 7. We're in Mark 7 again. We've been in Mark 7 for the last couple of weeks, um, and uh, today is, is no different. Uh, we're going to be in Mark 7, 24 through 30, just a small story. Um, and uh, as you're opening up, I, I'm going to just take a few moments to remind ourselves uh, of, of the context here. Mark 7 is uh, a chapter that's really all about how do we become clean before God. And the chapter starts with this showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day from Jerusalem uh, who come to, to Jesus as he's ministering in Galilee, and they ask him this question. They, they say, hey, hey, how come, Jesus, how come your, your disciples aren't following all of the traditions that we have set up, the traditions of the elders, like all of us good Jews are doing? And this question from them actually betrays this deep-rooted belief in the religious establishment of that day. They had this belief that the key to, to God's blessing, the, the, even the key to, to bringing God's kingdom in its fullness on the earth was actually to practice all of these different religious rules. In fact, if you were to not keep all of these different traditions, and, and these traditions, by the way, were elevated to the place of, or even at times uh, above the importance of Scripture, if you don't keep all of these different rules and regulations, then it can actually have disastrous consequences on all of us as God's people. And so over the first 23 verses of this chapter, Jesus is talking with these different people, and he, in one sense he agrees with the religious leaders, and in another way he, he disagrees with their conclusions. First, he agrees with them. He agrees with the religious leaders that there is a desperate need for us to be clean before God, that we need to be clean if we want to enter into God's presence. Something has to be done to address this stain of sin in our lives. And so Jesus agrees with them. And yet at the same time, Jesus says something completely and radically different than the religious establishment on a, a different point. He says, while we all need to be clean before God, the key to our cleanliness before him is not for us to take it upon ourselves. It is not for us to create rule after rule after rule in order for us to earn our way to God. In fact, Jesus says, if you're going to go down that path, it is the path of folly, and, and ultimately, it is a path that leads to damnation. You see, all of you are, are just focused on the external things, Jesus says when he's talking to these religious leaders. You're focused on, on food and, and washings, but those aren't the things that make us unclean before God. Nothing on the external side of things will ever make us unclean before God. And this morning, we're going to see that another category is added there. Jesus says, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. That's not going to make you unclean before God either. And Jesus says, no, the, the issue is actually far deeper than all of those things. The issue is not what we do on the outside the issue is our hearts. It doesn't matter how much we clean ourselves up before God on the outside if something or, or someone doesn't come and give us a new heart, then we are lost. 
and hopeless. In Mark 7, 14 through 23, we looked at it last week. It's, it's this incredibly terrifying story, and yet it's, it sets the stage for some of the, the most incredibly beautiful news of all. It is a terrifying story because it says that if, if holiness and cleanliness before God are matters of the heart, then that means that there is nothing that you can do to make yourself right before God. And yet at the same time, it is incredibly beautiful news because it sets the stage that even though there is nothing that you can do to make yourself right before God, the end of the Gospel of Mark tells us that God has chosen to do what we could not do. Jesus declares later on in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. God knows that we are simultaneously desperately in need of someone to make us right before him, and at the same time, completely unable to do anything about it. And so God takes it upon himself to send his son as a ransom for many. And we have mentioned time and time again over our study of the Gospel of Mark, Mark was good friends with the Apostle Peter. In fact, it's, it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that the, this gospel is, is actually the gospel from Peter's perspective. He's the one who helps Mark writing it. And about the exact same time that Mark is writing down this gospel, Peter is writing his letters to the church. In his second letter, he says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And he keeps going on and on and on. But the focus there is that sinful desires corrupt us, but God has made a way for us to be right before him. We are right and clean before God because of what Christ has done for us. And the implication of this good news for us is that there is nothing that we can eat, nothing that we can drink, nothing of any of those things that will make us unclean in God's eyes. And as we're going to see this morning, it does not matter what your background is. It does not matter what your roots are. Are. It does not matter what your past is. Those things will not make you ineligible to receive God's mercy. Mark 7, 24 through 30, uh, breaks into two sections. First half of this uh, story is this parable from Jesus. Second half is the response to the parable. And if that um, basic breakdown sounds familiar, it's because it is. Mark is being very intentional. We looked at this exact same structure last week. In 14 through 23, there's this parable from Jesus and then a response to the parable. And now we see this parable from Jesus and, and a response to that parable. The only difference is there's this powerful contrast between how Jesus' disciples respond to the parable. These people have been traveling with Jesus all of this time. 
they respond and they don't understand. And yet then there's this woman, this Gentile woman, culturally far from God. She hears this parable, and yet we'll soon see she has the most radical faith of anyone in the gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn uh, to, to, we're going to start in verse 24 this morning. It says this, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Okay, so to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has almost exclusively ministered in the region of Galilee. Mark 5, 1 through 20 tells us about this brief journey into a Gentile territory, but that trip actually probably only takes about 8 to 12 hours. And then Jesus comes immediately back to the region of Galilee. So Jesus spends almost all of his time at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark ministering in Galilee, but one of the challenges of his ministry there in Galilee is actually how popular he becomes. Everywhere Jesus goes, he is swarmed by these crowds, and these crowds are so big, they're so great, they're so needy that Jesus is pressed to the point of exhaustion. He can't eat, he can't even sleep at times. And Jesus begins to seek all of these different ways, these different opportunities for him to be with his disciples, to to go out on a retreat, to rest, and just to invest in them. But those times are almost always interrupted by these crowds. Mark 6, 30 through 44, the story of Jesus feeding the the 5,000 is an example just of that. And so Jesus, it's clear to him that he is not going to be able to find rest. He's not going to be able to find the, the restoration, the rejuvenation, the solitude that he's looking for in Galilee. And so he decides, well, I'm not going to stay in Galilee then. I'm actually going to go to Tyre and Sidon, this region about uh, 30 to 50 miles north and west of the Sea of Galilee. Let's go ahead and throw that map up there so um, you, can, you can see it. Um, if you see the two circles up to the, to the north on the map, that's Tyre, and then the one further north is Sidon, and then down low in the center of the map, that's Galilee. So, so Jesus is in, if you look, um, the yellow region is Galilee, and then the pink region is uh, Phoenicia, this pagan area, this Gentile area where Jesus has now entered into for this moment of rest. Now, as I just mentioned, Tyre, Sidon, Phoenicia, uh, primarily a pagan area. In fact, the Jews of the first century considered it to be a very godless area. There's a Jewish historian from the first century who said that um, he actually, many Jews considered that Tyre and Sidon were the greatest of the uh, Jewish enemies. And it's probably because, um, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, 1 Kings, the, the worst king in the, in, the, um, in the Old Testament, his name is Ahab, and he marries this woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel actually introduces all of this idolatry into the nation of Israel, and Jezebel is from Tyre and Sidon. And so the people of Israel don't like those who are from Tyre and Sidon. They would undoubtedly consider this an unclean place. You don't want to go there. You don't want to be around these people. We're going to avoid them. But remember what we saw last week. Jesus makes this declaration that nothing on the outside can make you unclean before God. That includes food. That also includes people. And so Jesus sets off for Tyre and Sidon for a chance to rest. 
Now, this is a Gentile area, but that doesn't mean that there aren't Jews who, who live there in that region. Mark 3 tells us that as Jesus is ministering in Galilee, he actually begins to attract this crowd of people even from as far as Tyre and Sidon. Now, these people are most likely Jews. Almost certainly they are Jews um, because Mark would have said that they weren't if they weren't Jews. And, and they come to see Jesus, this traveling Jewish miracle worker, Mark uh, 3, 7, and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now, it's likely that one of these early Jewish converts from Tyre and Sidon, mentioned in Mark 3, is actually the, the person who serves as the host for Jesus in our story here in Mark 7. They open their house to Jesus as Jesus is, is out of um, the the area of Galilee, and he's seeking rest. But, as we see at the end of verse 24, Jesus and his desire for a retreat, for solitude, he even goes into this pagan area, that, that's not going to work for all that long. People are desperate to find Jesus. And that's what happens here in this story. Pick up in verse 25. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, literally a Greek. That, that's going to come into play here in a moment. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So here is Jesus, and he's seeking solitude, he's seeking rest, with his disciples, and almost as soon as he arrives, there's this woman at the door. She, she breaks down the door, and, and I just want to point out three attributes that Mark stresses here about this woman that make this moment extremely shocking. First, of course, it, it's, it's a woman. Now, we know from the Gospels that Jesus has a very high view of, woman, uh, of women. He includes them uh, in his uh, disciples and, and his closest followers. Luke chapter 8 tells us this. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, notice that this passage in Luke actually not only tells us that, that women traveled with Jesus, but also tells us that they kind of bankrolled Jesus' itinerant ministry. And so Jesus has a high view of women, so this wouldn't be a big deal for him, and yet that was the exception to the rule in the first century in Judaism. A first century Jewish morning prayer that Jewish men oftentimes prayed essentially said, God, thank you that you did not make me a woman. There was this attitude that, that women were, were, were less, that, that you would never even talk to a woman in public, and certainly a woman would never have approached and spoken to a rabbi in a crowd or in a context like this. And so in the, in the midst of this context in Mark 7 of what's clean and what's unclean, here we have this woman who is shattering every single cultural expectation and rule in order for her to get to Jesus. That's the first thing that Mark stresses. The second thing that Mark stresses is that she's not just a woman, she's actually also a Gentile or a Greek. Mark stresses her background over and over and over here. 
This is not a Jew who is living in Gentile territory. She is a Greek. She is a Syrophoenician woman. Matthew tells us she's a Canaanite. She's a local person. And the fact that she's called a Syrophoenician may even say that she is actually one of the elites in that culture of that day and age for the pagans. Here's a woman who is outside of God's promises. Now, the Old Testament, if, uh, if we study it, we see all of these different examples of God being merciful to the Gentiles and bringing the Gentiles in, but that's oftentimes overlooked in the first century. There was this mindset that the Gentiles were unclean, that we don't want to be around them. And so that prayer that I alluded to earlier that, that Jewish men would say every single morning, it, it, it says this, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman, who has not created me a Gentile, who has not created me a slave or a fool. And this is what they would say every single morning. This is, thank you, God, for, for not making me like them. There's this gap between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews despise the Gentiles, as we've seen to this point in the Gospel of Mark. Whenever a Jew would leave a Gentile territory, they'd come back into Jewish territory, first thing that they would do is they would shake the dust off of their sandals as a sign or a, a statement of condemnation toward those Gentiles. Every single time a Jew would enter into the into the marketplace, essentially go into public, they would afterward have to wash themselves because of the threat of contamination from Gentiles. You see, not only is this person a woman, but she's a Gentile woman. She's a, a pagan. She's a pagan of pagans, and she's coming to this Jesus. And third thing that Mark stresses is that the the issue that she brings to Jesus, her little daughter, in this context of what's clean, what's unclean, what is her little daughter suffering from? An unclean spirit. If you were to describe this situation to a Jewish man and said, hey, this pagan woman has a daughter who is suffering from an unclean spirit, the typical Jewish man in the first century would have said, well, of course she is. Of course that's what's happened. It, it just makes sense. And so Jesus, in the midst of all of this, he's standing there, and, and somehow he, he, he doesn't kick this woman out. He doesn't say, get away from me. Right after this context of saying, all of us are desperately far from God because of our hearts, Mark tells us this story of this woman and says, culturally, you are not going to find a woman who is further from God than her. And she comes to Jesus, the epitome of a cultural outsider, a woman, a pagan, whose daughter is possessed, and, and to make things even worse, Jesus is, is not, he, he's got the, uh, I'll, I'll be back soon sign up on the door. I, I, I don't want to be healing. I just want solitude. I want rest right now. I'm on vacation. And things aren't looking good for this woman, but this woman doesn't have any time for cultural rules, does she? She is extremely bold. She doesn't have time for all of these different uh, issues of, of what's clean and what's unclean. She's heard that Jesus has the power to save, and her daughter desperately needs a Savior, 
And so she bursts in. She busts down the door, charges into the house, falls at Jesus' feet, and she doesn't stop begging him to save her little girl. The word beg here in, in Greek, it's, it's this continual action. This isn't just a one-time thing. She doesn't just make her case and then wait for Jesus to respond. She nonstop, from the moment she enters, and, and she is saying, please, Jesus, save my little girl. And in one sense, the boldness of, uh, that we see here from her, not all that surprising. If you were to, to lay out a scale of what's a, who's a coward and, and who's a hero, there'd be like this other category called moms whose, whose kids are in, are in danger, right? She, she wants her, her daughter to be saved from this terrible evil, and she's going to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to make sure that she is saved. Her personality is irrelevant. The, the cultural ba- barriers are they're absolutely irrelevant. And she springs into action the moment she finds out that something might be able to save her little girl. And as we jump into this parable, just, just pause and, and consider the powerful picture that this woman serves of how we also can approach Jesus. How we also can approach Jesus in our times of need. You see, we're going we're, we're gonna to see here soon that Jesus doesn't only just allow this boldness, he actually delights in it. Jesus wants us to come to him like this woman because he deeply cares for us. He deeply loves us. He wants us to come boldly. He wants us to ask persistently. There's no such thing as as nagging when it comes to Jesus. His mercy and and his power are great. And whatever your greatest burden, Jesus cares about it just as much as he cares about this woman. Jesus says, come to me, just like this woman does. But at first, it may not seem like Jesus says that. After all, if we we look at Jesus' response in the next verse, it's perplexing. This woman is persistent. She's begging Jesus to heal her daughter. Jesus responds probably one of the most confusing verses in the entire Gospel of Mark. It says this, And he, Jesus, said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, when when I read that, just on its own, out of context, I confess not exactly what I would expect Jesus to say. It sounds calloused, it sounds impersonal, sounds uncompassionate, sounds harsh, maybe even a little bit racist if you look at the difference of, of Jews and Gentiles here. And, and a lot of opinions are shared. Well, what exactly does Jesus mean here? What is Jesus trying to communicate? But the answer, not all that difficult to grasp when you look at the context of the story uh, and what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is using a parable. He's using a parable, as he's done so often in the Gospel of Mark. He's not calling this woman a pejorative dog. Any more than in Mark chapter 4, he calls the the Word of God a seed. He's not saying, well, that's not pejorative. This isn't pejorative either. He cares for this woman. And so he uses this illustration from this woman's context. Let me explain that. Old Testament almost universally despised dogs. Now, now, before you revolt, this is actually quite common across the world. If you go to um, Africa, oftentimes, uh, or, or Latin America, you will not see dogs as pets 
as much as you will just see them as scavengers. Those that are out on the street, you, you don't want to be around them. They're, they're not safe. You, you avoid them. And, and that's the view that the Old Testament takes of dogs. But that's not the case for Greeks. And remember what this woman is. Is she uh, Greek? Yes, she's a, she's a Greek. Greeks were the only people, uh, some of the only people in ancient history that, that had dogs for pets. And so here is Jesus, and he's speaking to this Greek woman, and he says, you know what, I'm going to use an illustration. I'm going to use a parable from your own context. Not from my own context as a Jew, but your context as a Greek. And then he makes this even more explicit by using, a, 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 we, we've talked about the diminutive form of words a couple months ago. This is what you do in a language when you take a word and you soften it, or you make it cuter, or you make it littler. So the word mom, the diminutive becomes, or mother becomes mom, becomes mommy, and dad, or father becomes dad, becomes daddy, and daughter becomes little girl, and dog becomes puppy. And that's what Mark uses here. That's what Jesus uses here. He doesn't just say dog. He, he actually says puppy. So uh, maybe a better way of, of translating verse 27 would be this. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppies. So that's what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus is using this parable, and he's using this story to get his point across. The only question is, well, what? What on earth is Jesus' point? What is Jesus trying to communicate to this woman? Well, Jesus is testing her faith. He knows she's a pagan. He knows that she's come to him for this healing, but he wants to know, how does she view him? Does she come to him just like she would any other pagan magician? Oh, I heard that that, that guy over there, he, he worships Baal, but, but he can heal, so I'm going to come to him and see if he can heal my baby girl. And Jesus is asking, he's presenting this parable to, to give her the opportunity to show what is her faith like. She obviously has some faith because she wouldn't come begging Jesus to heal if she didn't think that he could actually do it. But Jesus wants to take that small offering of faith, and he wants to throw it in the fire. And he wants to refine it, to test it to see what it actually contains, what it's actually like. Again, just, just pause and consider, doesn't God do that to us too? Doesn't God oftentimes take the, the faith that we bring to him, we, we muster up our faith and we say, all right, Jesus, this is, this is all that I can give to you. And he says, all right, thank you, but let's make it grow. Let's refine that. Let's, let's focus more and more on me. He allows us to go into these difficult situations where the genuineness of our faith is tested and we have this opportunity to grow, this opportunity to be refined. Peter tells us about this in his first letter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, this parable, if we, if we, if we take it 
if we hear it the way we are supposed to, it reveals this important truth. Jesus oftentimes tests us. He tests the genuineness of our faith in ways that are mysterious. Oftentimes, Jesus will test the genuineness of our faith in ways that are extremely mysterious to us. Remember what Jesus wants most from us. He wants us to be his disciples. He isn't content with us just being half-hearted followers. He wants us to become more and more and more like him, and he is willing to do whatever it takes to see us become more like him. Even to the point, if that means he takes your faith and he throws it in the fire, Even if that means he's going to let you experience hardship. Even if that means he's going to say no to something that just seems right. Seems like it makes sense, like what this woman is doing here with Jesus. It's not because Jesus doesn't care. It's because he cares about you so much that he wants your faith to blossom beyond what it is right now. And he tests this genuineness of our faith in ways that are mysterious to us. So how does this woman respond? Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What a powerful statement from this woman. We've talked a couple times about the context of of Mark and what parables are for. Remember what parables are for? Mark chapter 4, 10 through 12. I'm not going to read it for us this morning, but it says this. It essentially tells us that Jesus teaches in parables in order to conceal the truth. He teaches in parables so that people have to seek him if they want the answer. That they would go from being this distant admirer to a close follower of Jesus. And every time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells these parables and people respond in two ways. They either respond by not understanding and then walking away. Or they respond by not understanding and running to Jesus. But then we get to this woman. This pagan woman is the first and the only person in the gospel of Mark who hears Jesus' parable and actually gets it. She actually understands. Previous, uh, previous verses in this chapter, Jesus lightly rebukes his disciples because they hear a parable and they don't get it. And then we look here, and Jesus teaches another parable. And she gets it. No cultural qualifications necessary. She understands. She has this incredible faith. She has this incredible confidence in Jesus' mercy, this incredible humility in pursuing Jesus. She has a true faith. She is one who hears the message. She understands, and she responds. And she understands, and she responds by running to Jesus. Just for a second, consider the the quality of her faith, this humble faith here. Jesus in this parable uh, essentially says, I have come to, to the people of Israel first. Once I have fulfilled my mission to them, then mercy will come to you, a Gentile. Israel first, Gentiles second. He doesn't say no. He essentially says as a test, not yet. Not yet. It wouldn't do for the Jewish Messiah 
to have a following of Gentiles larger than he does a following of Jews, at least before his crucifixion. And how does the woman respond? Well, her faith is absolutely astounding. She doesn't get mad at Jesus for this statement. She doesn't say, hey, come on. That's not fair. And she says, yeah, Jesus, you're right. You are the Jewish Messiah. And of course, the blessing of salvation that comes for all the nations has to start with God fulfilling his promises to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, starting with Abraham. And she gets that. She understands that. In other words, her faith recognizes her complete and, un- un- and her unworthiness to beg for mercy. She doesn't point to her qualifications. She doesn't point to her background. She doesn't have any. She doesn't point to her own merit. She understands in a way that the disciples did not that her heart is dirty, that her heart is unclean before a holy God. The foundation for her plea to Jesus is not her own her own doing, or her own worthiness, it's something else. But at the same time, she doesn't despair either. She doesn't say, yeah, I figured that would be the case, and then walk away rejected and dejected and despairing. She doesn't do that either. She knows that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and yet at the same time, she's heard enough about how powerful he is. She's heard whispers that he can raise the dead. She's heard that evil incarnate falls at his feet, that nothing is too powerful for him. She has this radical understanding of his power that is unstoppable. It cannot be defeated. Nothing is too hard or too big or too strong for his mercy to conquer. Everything bad comes untrue in this Jesus. And so how does she respond? Well, she uses the language of Jesus' parable. She enters into this parable and responds just the same way that Jesus spoke. She's answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, you're right. I don't deny that you have come for the children of Israel first. If the blessing is to reach all of the nations, then it has to start with your promises in the Old Testament. Yes, Lord. But Jesus... Why make me wait? Why make me wait? When the children are given food, even the puppies get to lick up the crumbs. They don't have to wait. They get the leftovers, and Jesus, that's that's more than enough for me and my little girl. I'm not asking for a feast. I'm not even asking you to withhold bread from your children. I am asking for crumbs Because your power is so great that even crumbs will do. This woman gets that the table of God's mercy is this unfathomable feast, this feast that will satisfy us forever. So great is the feast of his mercy that a seat at the table right now for her is overkill. She doesn't want to sit at the table. She says, Jesus, by all means, bless your people first, but just allow me and my daughter to be caught up in the wake of your mercy. See, Jesus has has told her this parable in order to test her faith. Uh, This woman, is she coming to him as a pagan or does she actually understand who he is and what he has come to do? 
You see, Jesus doesn't want to just heal her daughter for 30 or 40 years, but leave her eternity untouched. And so he, he tests her. He tests her faith, and this woman gets it. She understands what Jesus is saying, so she responds exactly the way that Jesus wants her to. Yes, but... Yes, Jesus, but heal her anyway, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 29, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found her child lying in bed and the demon gone. The ESV, I think, misses the weight of Jesus' response. New Living Translation, um, it's a little less literal. I think it catches the enthusiasm of Jesus' response a little better. It says this in verse 29. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. Jesus is thrilled. He desperately wants not just to heal this woman and her daughter of this affliction for a temporary amount of time. He wants to welcome this woman and her daughter into his family, but they had to pass this test to see if their faith was actually genuine. And the woman passes with flying colors in a way that no one else has. In the Gospel of Mark, she understands who Jesus is. She understands what Jesus has come to do. Jesus could not have asked for more from this woman. And when you are in the fires of affliction, when you find yourself in the midst of hardship, when your faith is being tested by Jesus, and when you remain obedient, Jesus delights in that too. He delights in that just like he delighted in this woman's response. Because we have true faith just like this woman. This woman has true faith, and that true faith seeks mercy because of God's character and not because of our own qualifications. True mercy, true faith seeks God's mercy because of who he is and not because of who we are. She doesn't rely on her own merit. She instead relies on Jesus alone. Last week, we looked at this idea that holiness is a matter of the heart, and there's no possible way for us to make ourselves clean before God. And this morning, this builds on that truth. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves clean before God, but yet here we see this startling picture of true faith, of this purifying faith, this faith that makes us clean. How is it that we can be right before God? We have this faith in the completely satisfying work of Jesus on the cross for us. In fact, if we were to sum up this morning's text I think it would simply be that. A, puri a purifying faith confidently clings to Jesus' mercy, not our own qualifications. Confidently clings to Jesus' mercy, not our own qualifications. Like this woman, we come to Jesus with nothing to offer. We cannot claim, uh, uh, we, have, we cannot make any claim upon his mercy from our own standing. But that does not mean that we have no hope. That does not mean that we have no confidence before God. In fact, our confidence is in a place that is infinitely greater, infinitely better, infinitely stronger, more secure than our ability to measure up to God. It is found in the unending mercy and unending grace of the gospel found in Jesus. A purifying faith clings to Jesus' mercy, not to our own qualifications. And so as we close this morning, just ask yourself, 
Where am I running to to be clean? What am I clinging to? Where have I placed my hope? Maybe like the Pharisees from the last couple of weeks, we have, even if it's just unintentionally, we've begun to place our hope and our confidence in, in what we do, the quality of our prayers, the, the frequency of our church attendance, the, the consistency of our Bible reading, the good things that we do for others. Mark 7 shatters any illusions that, that we have these things, these good things that can make us right before God. On the other hand, Perhaps we've given in to despair. We're at a point where we know that there's nothing that can make us right before God, nothing that can make us worthy before God, but rather than running to the cross, rather than finding mercy there, we fall into this despair and say, there is nothing, there's no possible way that I can make myself right before God. Not even God could do it. God could never forgive me, not with what I've done. And Mark 7 shatters those illusions as well, that we are too far gone for God's grace and mercy to welcome us in. What we must do is, is follow the middle way, the way of this Syrophoenician woman. You see, both of these other things, they're, they're these pitfalls that we can merit our way to God and that there is nothing that even God could do to make us lovable, both of those are pride. One says, I can do it on my own, and the other says, I don't care what God says. I only care what I say. And God may say that he will welcome me in, but I refuse to listen. There is a middle way, the way of this Syrophoenician woman, this true faith from this woman says, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you that will make you love me, but at the same time, I'm coming. I'm coming anyway, then this faith is, is humble. It sees our sin for what it truly is, and yet it's humble in that it also sees God for who he truly is, merciful beyond our comprehension. And so this morning, remember the pinnacle of that mercy. It's found at the cross. The moment when Jesus offered up his life for the sake of people like you and me to bring us into his family. Just here in a few moments, we're actually going to remember that. That's what communion is all about. It's this powerful moment when we receive it in true faith, in humble faith. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, it is a, is a proclamation to yourself and to others that I'm not resting on my own merit to bring me into God's presence. It's only by what he has done for us. In the book of Isaiah, God tells us who is welcome to come to this table. Isaiah 66. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. A true faith, a faith that purifies us, is a humble faith. It clings not to our own merit, but it clings to the mercy that we see at the cross. And so as we approach this table, ask yourself, what is the object of my faith? What am I resting in to make me clean before God? Is it my own merit? Is it my background? My family? Or is it the cross? A, a mercy so great and deep 
and wide. It will never separate us from Christ. It covers us from the first to the last. It brings us into God's family, a mercy so great that even a crumb of, us, of it would satisfy us for all, or for all eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for mercy, the mercy of the cross. And as we turn our attention to that mercy this morning through communion, we ask that you would help us to examine our hearts and examine our lives to see where we have placed our hope, where we have placed our trust. God, may it not be anywhere else but in your Son and what he has done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.